Welcome to the Global Business School Network podcast. I'm Rob Vember. Over the course of the next five episodes, we'll look back at our Talent for Africa Forum. Convened by GBSN and its first corporate member, Ecobank Academy, this virtual forum was born out of the belief that no sector, business, government, education, or nonprofit can make meaningful progress alone, especially in such an incredibly diverse, complex, and dynamic environment as the continent of Africa. Indeed, we view collaboration between the sectors as absolutely necessary to achieve the future that Africa wants. The space between the sectors holds the greatest potential for innovative solutions. This unique virtual forum highlighted the monumental importance of leadership, management and entrepreneurship across sectors and across the continent. The forum aimed to explore the challenges of building education and development capacity and aligning it with the needs of a rapidly changing continent. The conversations were designed to review new opportunities for innovation and collaboration, especially across business and business schools, to overcome these challenges. Later sessions dealt with transformative innovation and entrepreneurship, the future workforce, learning and development in the fourth industrial revolution, the business of sustainable development, and the final session on powering digital transformation. In this first recording of the series, it was my pleasure to host a panel on Africa's talent challenges in a changing world. All of the sessions were live and, of course, hosted with attendees who have registered from around the world. This is the first session. To talk a little bit more about uh, the Global Business School Network, as well as our first, as I mentioned, corporate partners in Ecobank Academy. I want to uh, welcome and ask them to please turn on their, their cameras so that we can see them. Uh, Dan Leclerc, who's the CEO of the Global Business School Network. And I saw Simon pop up, so I hope I'm not catching him off guard or by surprise. He's the hoop, uh, group head of talent, learning and development, and he's head of Ecobank Academy. Uh, Simon Ray, if, if you're still lurking in the background, uh, I would appreciate it if you'd join us for, for just a second. Um, and Dan, I'll hand over, for, over to you for a moment, just to take us through why this Talent for Africa Forum is so necessary. Thanks, Rob. And let me add my welcome to everyone and, uh, and also to the, to the panelists today. We're uh, very enthusiastic about the contribution you'll make today. And it's great to see you, Simon. Uh, Rob, your, your question about how all this started uh, really goes back to just a little bit more than a year ago in Lisbon, where we had our annual conference. And to, to make, I think, a, an, a more interesting story short, uh, Simon spoke. And Simon spoke about the challenge of developing talent in Africa. And he made a really, really important point. And that is that neither higher education nor business uh, alone can ensure that talent that, that Africa has the talent it needs to generate uh, the sustainable development it's seeking. And we started a conversation there. And the whole point of this uh, set of sessions, the Talent for Africa Forum and other things that we're doing together is to uh, develop in this, um, depending on your perspective, either gap or intersection between business and business education. And we look forward to understanding more about that uh, gap uh, today and throughout the Talent for Africa Forum. 
Simon, you want to add to that? Yep. Hi, Dan. I think you have uh, beautiful, uh, beautifully captured the, the essence. Uh, so we're excited uh, to be here, looking forward to learn from our panelists, uh, and of course also um, to learn from the participants through their questions. Uh, so we're very excited in this journey, to be a part of this journey rather. Thank you. Back to you, Rob. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Dan. And thank you to Simon. And again, echoing uh, Simon's comments to please encourage you to uh, keep your questions and your comments coming through. As I now would welcome all of our panelists to uh, turn their cameras on and join me on screen. And as they do so, their, their introductions and their bios are all uh, on our website at gbsn.org. I'm sure you've seen them uh, as you have registered for this webinar. We have an array of uh, great uh, speakers who cover both corporate um, higher education uh, institutions as well as the NGO space. So just briefly allow me to introduce each one of them. Karen Wakoli is a certified leadership coach, transformational uh, leadership trainer, certified seven habits of highly effective people trainer, mentor and social entrepreneur who delights in mentoring young women and men to be able to achieve their greatest potential in life. Uh, she is the founder and executive director of Emerging Leaders Foundation, an organization that focuses on raising young people as positive agents of change in society through effective participation in governance and decision making. She's over 50, 15 years, that is. She She's not that old, not Asia, uh, over 15 years of experience of doing youth emp empowerment work in Kenya and Africa at large. Patrick Awua is the founder and president of Ashesi University, a private non-for-profit institution that has quickly gained a reputation for innovation and quality education in Ghana. Before founding Ashesi University, Patrick worked as a program manager for Microsoft, where among other things, he spearheaded the development of dial-up internet working technologies and gained a reputation for bringing difficult projects to completion. He holds a bachelor's degree in engineering and economics from Swarthmore College and an MBA from USC. Berkeley's Haas School of Business. In 2004, Swarthmore awarded Patrick an honorary doctorate in recognition of his leadership in the African higher education space. He also holds an honorary doctor of laws awarded by Babson College. And then last, but certainly by no means least, Amadou Diallo is Chief Executive Officer, DHL Global Forwarding, Middle East and Africa. He was uh, previously Chief Executive Officer of Africa and South Asia Pacific DHL Global Forwarding, and prior to uh, that Chief Financial Officer at Deutsche Post DHL Logistics Division, Amadou has more than 25 years of experience in the tourism, banking, express and logistics industries. He was born in Senegal, is fluent in several languages. He's chairman of the supervisory board of Amrith Health Africa in Germany, member of the board of Arc Insurance, member of the Universal Business School of Mumbai, and we're proud to have him on the board of directors here at the Global Business School Network. So with that mouthful, I'm sure I haven't done uh, you all justice, but you're all very welcome. Uh, let me thank you again at the start for offering up your time today. And I guess as a a warning to everyone, this is such a, a, a mammoth task, this subject matter, uh, Africa's challenges and opportunities as it pertains to talent. And as I mentioned at the start, the subsequent sessions will look to delve into greater depth uh, at, at, a, at individual level, so to speak, on the, the different subsections uh, of what we're hoping to cover. Today is going to be very macro, very broad, very high level. Uh, that said, of course, I would encourage our panelists 
to to get as micro as they feel as it pertains to particular examples. So let me start here and, and uh, let me start with, with Amadou with one of these kind of broad questions. Sitting where we're sitting today, January 19th, 2021, looking at the broad conversation of Africa's talent challenges, how different is the conversation that we're having today from what the conversation may have looked like a year ago, where COVID was just about rearing its head, there were uncertainties, we were getting all kinds of messages from different parts of the world of what this is, is this something to be concerned about? Effectively, what kind of impact has, has this last year had on the trajectory that Africa was on? First of all, thank you for, for inviting me to sit with uh, such honorable uh, speakers. Um, I, I feel very privileged and thanks for the opportunity also for all the participants. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's a very interesting question. Uh, you know, um, first of all, our continent sort of Africa has uh, uh, a lot of youth, young people, uh, more than uh, any other continent. Um, Yes, we uh, have some sometimes some gaps in terms of you know uh, education in the formal way you know going through universities, but we actually have a lot of talents. If you look at you know people that are working in uh, what we call uh, the non-formal sectors uh, in de many different markets. Secondly, uh, because of uh, most of our youth being exposed to more challenges than youth in other markets, uh, you know in Asia or in in, in Europe. Or in America, so you know the the level of entrepreneurship that is sort of expected to be faced when you are traveling across Africa, if you are in Angola or Nigeria or Ethiopia, is actually much higher than people would some, sometimes expect. And uh, and given the challenges and difficulties that have been you know uh, sort of crossing the continent and other markets in the globe, I think that the level of entrepreneurship that has been expected of people has risen. So I've seen. A lot of people setting up the digital platform to create solutions, innovate solutions, innovative solutions uh, to be able to provide services uh, to customers. So I, I just for the anecdote, so I, I, I know of a, a, a network of platform that has been created in Senegal because in Senegal, because it was a former French colony, people like to eat baguettes, the French bread. So they had created a platform to actually be able to deliver bread to people so that they would not be exposed to queuing. And that type of ideas, you know, I have seen in many different markets. So it was a challenge, but it was also more of an opportunity because he has uh, sort of obliged most of our markets and use uh, to find solutions rather than wait for solutions. So it was, I, I looked at it as an opportunity to change. And I think certainly we've, we've uh, Africans are I mean, known for, for, for many good things. And, and one of that, as you say, certainly entrepreneurship, the size and the, the vastness of the informal sector uh, within the continent and, and possibly, you know, one of our greatest challenges is to try and formalize a lot more uh, of that sector and bring them into, into the formal uh, economy and create a, a, a better pipeline. So I acknowledge what you're saying as far as uh, entrepreneurs being as entrepreneurs should be spurred into action by something like the global pandemic, having to think differently, think on their feet, think quickly. But of course, that's had 
different impacts throughout different sectors. Uh, Patrick, the education sector, of course, having to really uh, think on its feet and accelerate uh, processes going from uh, perhaps a, a blended approach or a fully physical approach to perhaps fully online. Uh, whilst I'm sure you're, you're, you're going to say there've been lots of great learnings in that, how much has it taken us back? How much damage has been done? Well, uh, there's been a, a significant disruption in education uh, on the continent, um, and especially um, in the public sector. So uh, in Ghana and many other sub-Saharan African countries, uh, schooling basically stopped for, for a year, right? So the primary schools, the secondary schools, and even some of the universities, many of the universities were unable to go online because they didn't have they didn't have the infrastructure to do so. And the, the students didn't have uh, the, the connectivity and the devices to, to be able to go online. So there's been a major disruption to uh, education broadly on the continent for the past year. Um, a few countries are now starting to reopen their schools. Ghana is one, Kenya is another, um, but it's, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a difficult situation. Um, in the private sector, we see more schools that were able to pivot to an online mode of, uh, of instruction. Uh, but even with that, you know, we, we've all had to sort of deal with making sure that there's students who don't have access to devices would get those, would get those devices. Um, and we've had to do a lot of work training the faculty and teachers to really implement an online only mode. Um, and then finally, you know, students, some students are struggling with dramatic increase in, sc in screen time, the sense of isolation that they feel working at home. And so counseling of students has also been critically important this past year. But no question, it's been disruptive, significantly disruptive. And Karen, during the course of your work, you're, you're dealing with a lot of young people, a lot of young people who you're trying to nurture a lot of young people who've had or who have all kinds of dreams and all kinds of hopes. Uh, how have you seen a change, if any, in 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 their levels of motivation, in their outlook um, to to achieve what perhaps their goals were a year ago? Um, thank you, Rob, and and um, I'm glad to be part of this conversation. Now, um, young people on on the continent. Uh, many of them are definitely very ambitious and innovative and practicing critical thinking, um, starting businesses or scaling some, creating jobs. Um, and they are motivated, they're driven, they're going on. But there's a challenge. The environment is not generally enabling enough uh, for most young people to thrive. And I'm very sure when we look across the continent, uh, despite the fact that we see over 72% of the population is composed of young people below the age of 35 years of age, many of them are unemployed. And I like what Amadou said earlier on about the fact that the informal sector is growing. And the interesting fact is that the informal sector is creating more jobs um, compared to the public sector or to the formal sector. Um, and therefore um, the need to um, build capacities of more young people to be able to 
engage in such businesses or enterprises, uh, but largely, can we move to actually formalize the informal sector so that then we stop giving it the brand informal sector because then it is now the sector uh, which is critical and I'm sure that will be able to spur many more young people to be able to thrive and, and have money in their pockets and participate in, in governance processes and just be the best they can be in life. So that is critical. Over to you, Rob. Well, speak a bit more to that in terms of, because is it just a kind of linguistic difference? What is the material impact? Is it perhaps, you know, a, a Western capitalist bias in terms of constantly talking about, as I did, um, you know, bringing the, the informal sector and making it more formal? Are we, should we be thinking differently about that as, as Africans, both from a narrative perspective, but also just in real terms? What does that look like? Okay, thank you for that question. So there's the, what we call the formal sector. Now, I'm sure this cuts across many of our countries that we have had young people who've gone through schooling from high school to university education. Some have degrees, some do not have degrees. They have various levels of certification, but some never even got to, um, to be certified. But then they have the vocational kind of skills, the hands-on skills, either in carpentry, hairdressing, and, and doing many other things, engineering, electrical, and you know all that. And increasingly, we are seeing that uh, those are the people who are getting jobs much more than the people who just have the papers. Um, and also increasingly, papers are sort of in a, in a sense losing the value because now there are many more universities and institutions of higher learning coming up and, and offering papers, churning out um, degrees and, and young people who essentially, um, I, I would say, um, are having a mismatch of skills between what they train in um, and what the job market actually needs or what the industry needs. We are seeing increasing need for people and individuals with hands-on skills um, than with just papers. Um, and I could give you examples of even uh, at my own organization where we are beginning to question really, ah, oh, yeah, papers are good, but then we need experience. We need ability to think critically. We need individuals who have ideas and are innovating left, right, and center. And unfortunately, um, realizing we don't get that um, in schools. I wonder what um, uh, Dr. Awa will say to that. But uh, yeah, skills I'm realizing are coming more with life and with people actually going out there to get their hands dirty and do the work. Now, coming to the informal sector, I think Unemployment has been so high that then many young people are beginning to ask, what can I do? What is my skill? How can I earn a secure livelihood? And they're finding themselves in, in, in Kenya, we call it the Juakali sector or the informal sector, doing various things and earning money and earning a livelihood and in actually employing other young people. So uh, yet there's a, a stereotype that if you are not in formal employment, then you're really not in a job. Yet the key thing is, uh, do you have the ability to utilize your, cap your capacity and abilities and talent to be able to earn a secure livelihood? I think that should be the question and not whether you, you, you dress formally and you go to a formal job versus those who wake up in the morning and go to their places of trading and, and earn a secure livelihood. I think it's about secure livelihoods, it's about our economies, our, our nations, it's about dignity and the quality of life that people get to live. Yeah. 
Thank well, you. I, I, there's a, a futurist, which is also an interesting job title, uh, but Dion Chang, who some years ago wrote about how the university degree is dead. Um, so that's perhaps the more harsh way of, of putting what Karen had just said. And so I'm going to throw the question. We don't have to wonder anymore what Patrick thinks about that. Um, Patrick, your comments on, on what Karen just said, and then we'll certainly bring Amadou in from what you're experiencing from, from the corporate point of view in terms of talent that you're getting into, into your organizations. But Patrick, first over to you. Well, um, so Karen is right about what's going on uh, uh, in many African countries um, and what's happening with tertiary education um, here in Africa. Um, but it's not that the it is not that the university qualification is dead or unnecessary. It's just that the way it is currently implemented by too many universities is not is not what the economy needs, right? And so there there's some key things that you know industry needs um, from university graduates. When you when you hire a university graduate. Who are you hiring? What are you hiring for? You're hiring a mind. You're, you're hiring somebody who can deal with ambiguity, who can be innovative, who can help you look forward rather than uh, look backwards, right? And, and yet, what's happening in education is it's really focusing people's attention on the past, right? So there's a lot of road learning that goes on. There's not enough hands-on um, experience um, in in the on our campuses, and um, and even the way we assess students is not really building the work ethic that they need to be productive. So let me give you an example. Um, so at Ashesi, we have a very multidisciplinary curriculum, and the reason we have that is that we want to teach students how to connect the dots between fields of inquiry. And that's a fundamental capability for creativity, for critical thinking, uh, for being able to encounter um, ambiguity and, and, and problem solve. Uh, it's also really critical for teaching students how to ask the right questions um, and to recognize problems and take them apart and solve them, right? We also have a mode of instruction that is very experiential. Um, and in fact, the assessment of students is um, you know, a final exam is typically less than 50% of the final grade. So all the work that students do during the semester, so the assignments that they do, the projects that they do, um, all of those things count towards a final grade. Now, this contrasts with other universities, which are very focused on road learning. Students go to class for a semester, so for four months, um, they go to class and at the end of the semester, they take a final exam that counts 80% or more of the final exam. That's not how the real world works. In the real world, every day counts. You don't go to work and sit around for four months. And then at the end of four months, you're in, you're, your boss comes and asks you some questions um, and you repeat the answers back to them, right? So this is, this is a fundamental problem that needs to be addressed um, in higher education in Africa. I also think that there needs to be a lot more work in connecting higher ed to the world of work. So we should be engaging with industry even as we design curriculum, 
we should be engaging with industry and getting feedback and adjusting curriculum every year or every two years. Um, and very importantly, we should be working on doing research um, in industry in Africa, uh, in Africa um, writing case studies that we can, you know, we can use to teach students how things work in Africa. Um, today, many of the textbooks, many of the case studies that we use are from outside the continent. They're from outside our context. And so students don't exit prepared for dealing with our context. So these are some of the problems that need to be addressed. And I think that, you know, as Ashesi has shown, you know, we have 100% placement of students in jobs or grad school or, um, or, or starting a business of their own. Um, and in fact, within six months of graduating, then it's 95% placement and 100% within a year. So, um, so clearly, if we do things differently, there are jobs there uh, for, for, for these students. And industry really can't wait to see more people educated this way on the continent. Amadou, there's, there's so much to, to pick up off of what Patrick's just said, but perhaps speak to that point of what you're seeing from a kind of corporate global business as, as big as, as, big as um, DHL in terms of talent that you're seeing coming in. And certainly if you could speak to what levels of engagement, if any, you've had as a corporation with you know, feeders, so to speak, such as universities or schools or, or lower down before you receive graduates, if there's been any level of partnerships and engagement, because we want to talk more about those kinds of partnerships and where we should be looking. So you're, you're welcome to pick up on, on, on a wealth of what uh, Patrick's just said. Well, thank you. <clears throat> so I, I, I think both Karen and, and Patrick are right, you know, in terms of what are things that are changing in, in, in our market. So we, as an organization, for example, we work with an association that is called ISEC, is Young Students Network that is you know, present in many different countries, not only in Africa, but also globally. And uh, global organizations tend to sort of now push for more diversity. That means, you know, for instance, if you are in Germany, you don't want to only have Germans sitting in your room, you want to have people that are coming from across the globe so that you can you know, multiply the different ways of thinking and find out solutions that are attractive to the rest of the globe. And the same is valid in most of the different markets. So for instance, when I take uh, our own organization, we, you know, we have young people that we took from university and trained them through the ISEC network uh, that are now running operations for our overland business in Saudi Arabia or managing our industrial project uh, in, uh, here in, in, in Dubai. They are coming from Kenya, from Ghana, from, from Burkina Faso, from many different places in Africa. And all of them, despite having gone through different universities, are equally smart in terms of how they can contribute to, you know, making sure that we are connecting and improving, connecting people and improving lives across across the region. Now, you know, you know, it is really very important to be able to take to pick people from, you know, high flying universities where they have like, you know, business economics and all the stuff. But it is equally important to be able to take people from universities that are perceived as not so good because they also come with a different passion and then a different hunger to work, you know. Because what is actually driving the talents that we are that I see at least, you know, when I'm uh, walking around and then talking also to different other companies, 
is the, the level of passion and hunger that is still instilled in most of our young people uh, are, are out of our continent. Because, you know, when he, I come from a small village in the south of Senegal, so, you know, for me, going to work is not just executing work. It is about making sure that I become, you know, extremely relevant in my organization because I have a bunch of brothers and sisters and a community to help. So the level of motivation that sort of drives most of our young people, you know, is related to a lot of responsibility that they, uh, that they carry with them. And that type of responsibility you usually don't find in many different other markets. But similarly, it is important for us to also be attractive uh, to external talents, not just to talents from Ghana or from Senegal, but also to hunt for talents that are, you know, educated in America, educated in Asia, because you want to make sure that our content becomes someday, you know, a global platform, not just a platform for the region, because then we are competing on, on the global market. So, you know, if you're operating in Ethiopia, you have a lot of interactions with China. So it is important to be able to attract Chinese people who are Africa interested, so that together with our young Africans that are born in Ethiopia or coming from Kenya or other countries, that we create platforms so that out of uh, Ethiopia, you can service markets in China and other places. Because right now, that is what I see as a trend that is happening because our governance has improved in many countries, even if it is not optimal, but it is, there is no place where it is optimal. Um, the level and system of education have changed quite a bit. So, you know, I knew when I was studying, you know, people like Patrick didn't exist in Senegal, you know, to train us in, uh, you know, many different things. We had to really export ourselves to other markets to be able to learn. And similarly, you know, there are a lot of invention that has been, uh, you know, taking place in Kenya, in, in, in Tanzania, in, in, in Rwanda, in many different places in South Africa, Zimbabwe, extra, which are now making, you know, giving opportunity for inventors to create business models uh, that can be exported. So, and for me, I look more at the opportunity of creating global platforms in Africa that will service the global market and competes against Asia and Latin America and some parts of Europe rather than just looking at a nombrilistic view of, you know, what do I need to do in one of our small 55 countries that we are sort of, you know, growing out of. And that is something that is currently existing. And, and I see a lot of young people, young Africans now that are going into Ivy League schools in the US extra, they are not always highly interested in coming to our market because, you know, they get proposed everything uh, because most of the companies abroad are looking for very talented Africans because they see the opportunity in our market but we also have to fight to get their best talents into our market so it is really a global platform in which we are operating so but there are really a lot of good talents that are growing out of our market which we need to put into play and coming back to what karen was talking about in terms of informal sector you know the informal sector is very big in our markets because our governance models or our governments are not really properly managing their business um you know and for me you know if i look at some young entrepreneurs that are, that are acting in Senegal, you know, they are happy not to pay taxes and not to be registered because they, in, in any case, they assume that most of the money they would pay would go somewhere where they wouldn't really like to see it there. So, um, but I think that as, as, as far as we advance and have proper governance, then it will be systematically so that we will have less informal and more formalized uh, business organizations. Thank you. Uh, Karen, you, you wanted to add to, to what Amadou was saying? Yes, yes, yes. Um, Amadou has said something really critical that I wish to, um, to jump onto and say something. Quality of 
education really matters. And it's so interesting that I have observed the trend that most of our private universities are offering better quality education than some of the public universities. And that's why you'd find that many of the people who are finding jobs or finding it easy to get jobs or be placed in jobs are individuals from private universities. Because again, as an employer, you want to get somebody who has various skill sets and practical abilities to be able to make things work. Um, and so investment in public education and public universities has been in a way limited to be able to limit the uh, access to quality education. Yet we're also aware that the quality of education one has and the ability to learn and acquire skills and have certain values to transform our minds um, is directly proportional to the quality of jobs that we get. And the quality of jobs that we get also, of course, determine our upward mobility, how much we're able to earn, how we're able to take care of ourselves and make an impact in society. And there's something else that is really critical in this. It's about transition rates. And we have seen, uh, there was a study in Kenya the other day that showed that only about 10% of women who uh, end up joining universities actually graduate or transition to the job market and, and other, other places. So where are the rest of the young women um, going into? So it would be really, really critical. And of course, COVID has also had its impact on girls' education and, and education as a whole. But then for young women and for girls, many of them, of course, are going to drop out. And it has had negative impact uh, on that. So it will be critical that we get to bridge inequalities. And like we be intentional. And collaboration is really key in this, both for government, for private sector, learning institutions, civil society, media, and all other partners coming together to then make sure we reduce inequalities by being intentional and investing a little more in public education. Thank you. So there, there's the hard question then, Patrick, is, is how do we do that? Because my sense is, and certainly in the South African context, we're not catching the talent early enough and we're not expanding the talent early enough on a basic education level. Numeracy, literacy, you know, I'm talking you know, primary school, stuff before we even uh, end up at, at undergraduate level or postgraduate level. How do we bring those collaborators together, government, civil society, um, policymakers, to, to better feed the system and to make sure that we're bringing as much of the talent to the top as is possible? Well, this is a, this is a difficult question. Um, you know, if you look around the continent, you'll see a lot of really good work happening in civil society. There are organizations such as uh, Lead for Ghana, Teach for Ghana, it used to be called Teach for Ghana, that are doing really great work um, in training teachers, right? And the question is, how do we get the public sector to look at what those private and civil society institutions are doing well and be interested in adopting them, right? Um, whenever you're engaging with government or the public sector, you're talking about large ministries, you're talking about policy changes, and the individuals who drive policy need to be motivated and interested in actually doing things differently. Um, and then there's a whole question of sort of how politics plays into all of this. I'll give you an example. In Ghana, um, 
the government uh, recently introduced some reforms that required teachers to have ongoing professional training as part of their work. Um, so they have to sort of be recertifying at some regular uh, pace. Um, and they also uh, sort of made it so, so that teacher training would become a full bachelor's degree rather than a two or three year program. Now, politically, you know, you know, political opponents propose something different to say, well, we're going to not require these certifications and we're going to not require uh, sort of stepping up the requirements to become a teacher because teachers don't want to do <laughs> that extra work. And you're sort of, you know, looking for votes from that, you know, for that big cohort of, of government employees, right? So it really comes down to leadership. Um, I think if, if the leadership is determined and interested that, you know, there's a lot of work that we can do to really change the way kids are educated in schools. It starts with making sure that the teachers are, are educated differently, that the schools are run differently. So even the management of schools needs to be modified. And there are good examples uh, that, that they can follow. It's just a matter of getting that leadership and the political will to do it. I want to remind everyone to please your questions and your comments. I've seen one or two coming in the Q&A uh, box. Uh, thank you, Hatim. I've noticed that. We'll get to your question in just a second. For everyone else, please, in the chat box uh, here on your Zoom screen, please do drop in your questions and your comments. Speaking of that kind of collaboration, and I'm going to do in, on the corporate level, and you, you straddle Middle East, Africa, and I'm sure beyond as well as Agenda 2063 still speaks of a, 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 a globalizing world, whereas we've seen the last number of years that hasn't necessarily on the face of it, if you, you know, read all the headlines, been the case, Brexit, uh, the US and the Trump presidency from the last couple of years, going more towards nationalist and isolationist uh, tendencies with the pan-Africanist agenda um, as is espoused in Agenda 2063 and the continental free trade um, area as of the first of this year, it's all good and well on paper. Um, from what you've seen and what you've experienced on the ground, so to speak, is there that kind of will uh, for that level of cooperation that is necessary to do the kind of things that, that Patrick's speaking of? Well, I mean, you know, what, what Patrick is, when, when Patrick was talking about governance and then all these proposals, it's always about leadership. And he mentioned it before, you know, so it really depends on who are the people who are leading our countries, uh, you know, and who are the people that we have elected within our countries to be able to, you know, drive change. So, and, and, and I think that it's, uh, you know, different depending on which market you're operating. So me, I'm born in Senegal, but you know, some of my parents, they come from Guinea and uh, Guinea Conakry, I'm sure you have seen, you know, what was happening there during elections and all these processes. So it, make, it makes it quite cumbersome to introduce change if there is not even alignment in, on political processes. And it, it becomes extremely cumbersome if the youth doesn't believe in neither the political process nor the education system, because then they even drop out and don't even try to go to school. Um, but, you know, if I take the example, uh, an example that I've seen in Asia, so, you know, I, I had the privilege of living for, for a few years in, in Singapore, um, where, where Pat, what Patrick was describing was actually, you know, the rule of the game. So, you know, the, the government had an economic development board, they would design their policies in terms of which sectors they want to develop and then go and engage with the university so that they train the number of engineers they needed for 
the different segments that they wanted to develop. You know, and that is something that has been working pretty well. And then if you look at the GDP of Singapore, you can see that it developed quite well, despite the fact that nobody likes the democratical system, because you know, sometimes in Africa, we always talk about all of our democratical systems and don't, don't, don't really love them. So there are practical examples that showcase that it works. Um, if you, I had the chance to go to Ethiopia because they're building up 14 different industrial uh, zones or uh, platforms. Um, which from which they want to develop different capabilities and then trying to make sure that electricity becomes cheaper. So also there you can see that they're training people who will become engineers in renewable energy extra so that they can you know, provide for cheaper energy. We have some that are working on textile engineering extra so that they can you know, import work from Asia, from Bangladesh extra and try to compete with those so that because they're closer to America and then can provide services to the American market. And you can see similar activities taking place in, uh, in Egypt, um, in Kenya, there are also a lot of activities, even I know, you know, there, there come some uh, political processes sometimes, but you can see that there's a lot of dynamic within the youth, and they are not only working in Kenya, but you can find them in Rwanda and many different places where they're contributing. Ghana, you know, I have a lot of Ghanaian colleagues, so, you know, we, we drove all of our digital transformation, we, it was driven by a young Ghanaian guy of 30 years, uh, who actually grew up in Ghana or still goes back to his village in Ghana, but he was able to deploy during the, the COVID time, which would be very difficult to ask of other people to go in, in and deploy that type of solution across all of Africa when we have you know, all these fears of you know, no vaccine, et cetera. So for me, I think that there's uh, appetite, there's, there are resources, there's a lot of energy, there's a lot of hunger from our youth, and even our mediocre education systems, you know, sometimes that's how we call it, yeah, um, actually do provide for enough talented people to be able to unlock opportunities across our market. And the proof, it, the proof of it is that actually you can find out a lot of school dropouts. You know, I mean, I can see them in my country in Senegal, and I see them sometimes when I go into some of the markets in Accra. You know, you have school dropouts, sort of people who didn't finish all of their studies, and then they, you know, they are actually doing exactly what Karin was describing. They, they learn on the job, they learn by doing, by doing some apprenticeship, etc., and becoming very successful entrepreneurs. The only thing they need is the additional acumen, you know, so that they can negotiate with bankers, they can better negotiate with suppliers in Asia or wherever. But we have a lot of entrepreneurs and entrepreneur spirit that is, you know, grown up in Africa. And it's run up out of necessity, not by design. And then it is actually more sustainable than if it is grown up by design, because then people tend to then wait and wait and wait for solution instead of shaping their own life and their own solution. So me, that's what I see happening in the market. And uh, and indeed, the educational system is not perfect, but I can you know cite a lot of universities even in in, in South Africa in Cape Town, which are now becoming high Ivy League universities, the same is in Rwanda, the same is in Ghana, in West Africa, uh, everywhere, and, and, and in Kenya. So we have a lot of nice new institutions that are training very talented people who are competing on the global platform. And for me, that's what I see as an opportunity. Rob, I wish to add to that, um, especially on the aspect of leadership. Leadership is key. Leadership is everything. Whether we're talking about uh, political leadership, Le leadership, is not necessarily political, but there's a place for political leadership. And there's a huge role that political leadership plays in formation of public policies and implementation of the same. And that has a huge impact on the quality of life that we live. So 
for instance, at Emerging Leaders Foundation, that's why we focus on developing leaders and uh, enabling them and supporting them to espouse ethical and values-based leadership um, before they even uh, start getting into greater and bigger leadership roles, because leadership matters, leadership is everything. It is sad to note that Africa as a continent loses trillions of dollars every year to corruption. Why? Can't we have leaders who are proud to be Africans, leaders who have service at their hearts, leaders who are pro-people and the policies they make are not out of self, self and selfish interest, but pro-people? That, that is really, really critical. And I hope for the Global Business School Network, part of the training we have and we offer in our institutions is also ethical leadership because leadership is everything. Leadership is critical. Leadership determines the quality of life that people live. It affects education. It affects access to healthcare. It affects access to social amenities. It affects even our own abilities to pursue happiness in our dreams in life. So leadership is really key. And I would urge that um, part of what then we get to do is to grow leaders, to nurture leaders, to show and even have case studies of people who have led well and are successful, but have ethics. Because right now it's a little, a little difficult to actually showcase values-based leaders who are wealthy and successful. And again, how do we define success? Um, so that, that is really critical. So leadership um, is really the cornerstone of all these things that we're talking about. Thank you. I think that's key and, and important not to get lost in the conversation, uh, even within the series that we have here, being Talent for Africa, that we speak of you know, the, the, the gaps in infrastructure, we speak of sustainable development, uh, we speak about ICT, connectivity, et cetera, et cetera. And, and excellent point, Karen, is not to lose sight of what, you know, that horrible old term of soft skills, um, leadership and ethics and how we're actually instilling and training with that in mind, uh, particularly uh, with the African continent in mind. Patrick, I'll bring you in with, a, with a, a comment, I guess, from Hatim Mazri, who says a lot of African higher education institutions are linked to Western countries, but have no interaction with universities and research centers in other African countries. I believe that without a strong African network, all development plans will not work. We need to create groups uh, to learn from each other and to move forward for a better future. And as I said, that's from Hatim Mazri, who's president of the African Federation of Operational Research Societies. I, I agree with that sentiment. And uh, one of the things that we've done at Ishesi is we've set up a collaborative, we just call it simply the Education Collaborative. And there are over 140 African universities that are working together on workshops sharing curriculum and pedagogy and so on. There's a lot more work that we can be doing around joint research projects. And I think importantly, we need to start looking at how we do student and faculty exchanges so that we have students crossing borders, uh, going to different campuses and sort of getting immersed in different cultures as well. But that's, I think that's all coming. Um, it's, it's a very important thing that we all ought to be doing. Amadou, there's a question uh, from Dan talking about, and we have spoken a lot about educating young people, uh, and we know certainly for the future of Africa, that's where you know, the numbers lie, and, and the numbers are quite staggering when you, when, you, when you look at them. But what about lifelong learning? Are you on a corporate level um, doing as much as you can at this point in time to make sure that 
people within both your employ, uh, but just given general thought to to not forgetting uh, those who don't necessarily fall within the context of youth, and and making sure that there is a a a, a constant flow of of learning and upskilling. Well, so we, yeah. So uh, you know, first of all, you know, you never stop learning. Yeah. So. <laughs> And, and that is regardless if you are a doctor or professor or whatsoever, we all, we never stop learning because there's always something that we can learn from an educator or from an uneducated person. There are always opportunities for us to learn more. So what we, you know, we, we have in our organization, we have a program called Certifieds. So we have roughly around 550,000 employees. So, and the aspiration is that actually every year, everybody goes through training. So we do compliance training, we do ethical training, we do trading, uh, training for all the different segments in which we are working. But in, in, on top of that, we are associated with an organization called Teach for All. Um, in that organization, what we try to do is attract young talents and make them work in a social environment for underprivileged people that are living in underprivileged areas. Um, and that was, uh, you know, Teach for Ghana is part of this Teach for All network, I believe. And what we try to do there is to organize that people volunteer and then when they demonstrate their skills and leadership by training, then they can be much better uh, people that are working with us as colleagues. Yeah, that's also something that we are that we are pushing for in Kenya, we have a program called my dream now this is with, in association uh, with uh, an NGO that is out of uh, Sweden. We're actually our own employees on their free time go and teach people who are learning in uh, you know, normal schools in, in Kenya, tell them about what is you know, work, you know, uh, you know, what does it mean if you are working in finance, what does it mean if you are working in IT, and, and to try to train young people who are 15 years old who are not yet in the working environment to understand what it takes. And that program has been actually run in Sweden. And, and in many different countries in Europe. And now we're trying to deploy it here and we will also be deploying it as a part of the Gulf. But we also have you know, our own volunteering. So our, our own employees go and volunteer with SOS Kimmerdorf where they teach underprivileged people. Um, you know, that's also the reason why I'm sitting at the, at the board of Global Business School Network because we are together, we are trying to organize uh, an initiative that is called Go Trade where we will try to go and train small and medium entrepreneurs with tools that we use ourselves in our business so that they can become much more competitive in the, in, in the global market. And that is something that is being deployed across all of Africa. Because at the end of the day, as, as Karen will say, you know, uh, what is rich? You know, rich is not uh, you know, measured in terms of you know, what is the salary that you have or you know, what type of title you have. You are rich when you can go home and then be able to convince your kids and your family that you have been doing something that is good for society. And it starts by learning and teaching and exchanging and then getting a much brighter brain. I'd I like to yeah. add to that, Rob. No, go um, ahead. Now, I think this is where we get to thrive um, in empowering young people as Emerging Leaders Foundation. We train them and we offer experiential learning in terms of soft skills, um, from self-awareness to leadership skills, public speaking, writing skills, digital skills, Pan-Africanism, some of these skills are really, really critical, regardless of your profession, whether you're a doctor, a farmer, an entrepreneur, a public servant, you need to be able to have these skills. So this is what we thrive in offering for young people. And we have discovered that there's actually power, for instance, in, in coaching, in mentorship, that yes, you offer these skills, but then are you able to link and match these young people, young men and women to 
people who've gone before them, either people who've already established businesses uh, and are successful, or people who um, have a passion in, in a certain skill area that a young person needs capacity building in, and they get to journey with them for a period of about a year. And within that period, you get to hear stories of transformation, either um, young women taking up leadership roles, young men rising through leadership ranks, they are able to make a difference in their own small ways. And within a period of time, you get to realize that you're building and growing a movement of change agents and change makers. So life skills and skilling and upskilling is really critical. And like just one of the authors, I can't remember his name said, that the elitists of the 21st century will really not be people who can't read or write, but people who cannot learn and learn and relearn. So learning is a lifelong process that is critical. The moment we stop learning, we start dying. So that is important. Thanks so much, Karen, for, for those words. And, and a few remaining moments, I wanna throw out a question to our panelists that I'll use uh, to wrap up with each of you, the same question um, being, where is the biggest area of opportunity? If you were to kind of pick one area of opportunity that we should be focusing on as a continent within the context of, of course, of, 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 of learning and the talent shortages uh, that Africa faces. Uh, what is that big opportunity? And while you ponder that for a moment, let me just acknowledge a couple of uh, comments that's come through. Moses Ngezi says, uh, totally in agreement with your sentiments on the ethical leadership as well as successful cases of ethically correct leaders to be emulated. Um, this Emmanuel is, is a, I feel like it, it needs 10 hours on its own, if not more. Uh, Emmanuel submits. Uh, Democracy is a form of societal governance, does not, as a form of societal governance, does not guarantee ideal development. Do we now as a continent limit ourselves to the promises of democracy if we must achieve our development aspirations? And Emmanuel Archer, uh, Executive Director of uh, EIFAY um, Africa in Nigeria. Um, there was one more that's come through from uh, Felix uh, Idowu says leadership is actually pivotal to harnessing talent in every land. We need to learn, unlearn, and relearn skills and strategies relevant for enhanced productivity in Africa. Adequate infrastructures that could effectively accommodate innovations need to be put in place. Political will of our leaders in effectively collaborating together to bridge any capacity gap would take us to the next level. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Felix, for those comments. Um, Africa's challenges are definitely its opportunity, uh, says uh, Yawanda. Uh, thank you so much for that. And with that, I'm going to ask uh, Patrick, you can, you're on my left. So I'll say uh, you, you can head off first with what is our biggest opportunity as a continent? I think Karen has talked about it. Um, imagine if every university, every school on the continent made it its mission not only to teach content, uh, professional content or academic content, but also to affect the character of, of students. And if we had a generation that's educated to be deeply ethical, uh, to be entrepreneurial in the sense that they're able to challenge the status quo and be creative about coming up with new solutions and have the courage to actually implement these new ideas that they have. If we had that built into the fabric of our educational system, we would change this continent. And so I would say that the biggest opportunity before us is to really look at an education that really um, educates ethical leaders 
and educates people who are problem solvers and who really care about their society. With that, and, and you know, with that, whatever field they go into, they're going to be a force for good, and that will really move the needle on the continent. Great. Amadou? Well, I will come back to something that Karen mentioned before. I, I personally, you know, because I, I spent quite some time with my mom and I see a lot of kids growing up and spending a lot of time with their mothers, I think the biggest opportunity is the education of our sisters and mothers, um, you know, to create a generation of no dropout within our sisters and mothers and to empower those because, you know, when we're talking about ethical challenges, most of them, uh, you know, are related to more of our ego type of, you know, boy thinking, uh, less than in uh, with our sisters. So I believe that our biggest opportunities is to educate all of our sisters and mothers and daughters and to empower them to run a bit more the business uh, of Africa. Karen, no pressure. You've been referenced twice now, so you got to, you got, you got to take us home. I will add to that and, and say that Afri uh, solutions to uh, challenges facing Africa will be created by Africans. So we definitely need to invest quite a bit in, in leadership uh, and in growing leaders to be able to lead and create change in the political space, in the private sector space, in our organizations, in our institutions. Because again, everything lies, rises and falls on leadership. So leadership is key. And we have to be able to create a generation of Africans who can be able to think through solutions and implement them um, to create a, a better Africa. The answer lies with us, Africans. Thank you. And I think that's, that's the perfect note to leave it. All that's left for me to say is thank you so much to Patrick, to Amadou, and last but certainly not least, Karen, for, for your insights. Uh, I, I mean, time flew. It's generally the case when you're having fun and, and, and great contributions. I want to thank everyone else for your questions and your comments and encourage you to continue engaging. This, as mentioned, was just the first of a number of sessions as part of our Talent for Africa virtual forum. For more on our Talent for Africa forum with Ecobank Academy, visit gbsn.org slash talent for Africa. And that's the numerical four. Join us next time as we discuss transformative innovation and entrepreneurship. Please remember to click and subscribe to the podcast and feel free to rate us if you've enjoyed listening. Until next time, take care.